Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm in love with Kaya Sariajo's music. I first encountered it at music school, where I remember being transfixed and a bit confused when a flute player friend of mine was spending hours in the practice room spitting all manner of syllables into and across the surface of her flute. When curiosity got the best of me, I asked to see the score, only to discover there was a whole poem in French written in her part. Am I supposed to be able to hear this, I remember asking. And she told me, no, not really. The poem was sort of performer-oriented. It was her way across the landscape of the piece. Audience, I don't expect them to, to understand it, but I feel that the flutist, it makes more sense for them, and then their whispering becomes more intense. That idea stuck with me because, well, I guess a written score is always a sort of unvoiced communication between the composer and the performer. That was the first time I'd actually perceived a composer kind of passing notes to the performer. I mean like passing notes in social studies or something without the teacher's knowledge. But instead, Kaya was passing notes to the player without the audience really knowing what was up. Though, like the social studies teacher, I'm sure they suspected something. After that first taste of her writing... I dug a little deeper, and what I found was gorgeous, and cool, and smart, and technologically forward-looking, and rigorous, and exciting to the performer in me, really, really hard. Today on the show, we're mining the brain of Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho. Kaya Sariaho's music, it evokes all sorts of natural sounds, the kinds of complex, white noisy sounds that we often tune out. She's able to take the instruments of the orchestra and pull out of them the sound of wind rustling through trees or of waves hitting the shore. She's got this ear that can hear music in everything and not in a John Cagey way. She's not putting all sounds on an equal playing field. Instead, she teases harmonies out of these sounds, finding notes that were almost there to begin with, notes I feel like... If I strain my ears hard enough in the forest, maybe I could hear too. Kaya is famous for writing moving, visceral works full of difficult new instrumental techniques, 
She often writes for acoustic instruments with almost subliminal electronic manipulation. It's hard to tell where the performer leaves off and the electronics begin. And she's written full-scale operas, often with strong, historically-inspired female protagonists, grappling with huge themes, love and death, that kind of thing. She's respected the world over, and her music is performed hundreds of times a year. So how did she get there? What inspired her to find these sounds and these ideas? Well, she wasn't raised in a musical family. In fact, she told me her parents never made it to a single concert of hers. Yet music always had a tug on her. She loved the radio, and after her elementary school teacher noticed she had an ear, her parents got her a violin teacher. I was a very bad violin student. I, um, I had a very bad teacher. I dreamt about piano. Because I wanted to try out harmonies. And when I was eight, I did get a piano at home. It was very important for me because then I could try to look for my music differently. I became very bad pianist also. My mother, she considered that I owned her a little concert when I came from school because my mother liked my playing and she liked me to play the music which was written on the score. And she did not like me to try to improvise or find my music. Kaya really wanted to compose, but playing such a large, conspicuous instrument, a piece of furniture, really, her mom kind of got in the way, preventing her from doing the type of improvisation necessary to find her music. By the way, I love that turn of the phrase, finding one's music. So she turned to something more portable, something she could keep in her room. So after that, I started playing guitar. And because then I could, in my room, I, I could then try to compose. I was around 11. I remember first the composition, and I remember it was called Yellow and Nervous. And then, unfortunately, I did read the biography of um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I realized that when he was 11, he had done quite a lot. And uh, I felt that I'm quite a lousy amateur and that I, I better stop. So did you stop at that point? Yes, I stopped. Mozart, Mozart's biography stopped you from yes. writing? Yes, well, I, I didn't have anybody, again, with whom I could have discussed that, you know, not everybody can be like Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 any other matter. It was very much my private thing, you know. I started, I stopped. I I I was dealing completely by myself with all these issues. Kaya straight up stopped writing music for a while, but she was still pursuing her violin and piano. I played all these instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played them all the time, and uh, I listened to all music I could find because again, I I didn't have any guides. I. I went to music library, uh, I found many things, I bought from music shops many things. I loved the Beatles also.
I love Jimi Hendrix. Billie Holiday always very much. All of me Why not take all of me I learned to know classical music little by little. I didn't have it in my childhood. I, I, was, I was playing a lot with radio and finding things from there. So it was very varied, in fact. A little bit later, I started playing organ because um, I, I was thinking that maybe that would be for me a way to live with music. Because music was very, very important for me. I, I loved it, uh, like, passionately. But it was kind of an uh, unhappy love affair. At that point, because I, I felt that I, I was not worthy, and I felt that uh, I want to live with music. So I was thinking that I could become organist and live in a tiny village in Finland, and you know, earn my living that way and be next to music. So play organ at a church. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, thing? that's what I thought. Yeah. When Kaya left for college, she was still firmly a performer only, studying organ and musicology, and for a short time, fine art as well. But composition kept tugging at her. So she found herself, little by little, writing songs and short compositions. Little by little, uh, there was really very strong feeling of uh, unhappiness and uh, really a very concrete uh, feeling that my life is wasted if I don't dedicate myself into composition. It became really very urgent need. Kaya then did something kind of remarkable. She knew, for some reason, that she needed to study with the Finnish composer Paavo Heinonen at the Sibelius Academy, but his class was full. I was extremely shy girl, but I just decided that this is now matter of life and death. And I, I just went to his class and I said that I will not go out before he accepts me as as his student. And then finally, he did. Did you catch that? Kaya walks into this completely full classroom and insists that the professor allow her to take the class. She says she's not leaving until he agrees to let her participate. And so he did. That's kind of ballsy. And that was really the most important thing that has happened to me in my, in my whole musical life. Kaya found she had some pretty exceptional peers at the Sibelius Academy. Composers you may have heard of, like Magnus Lindbergh and Esa-Pekka Salonen. While they were all thrilled to be in such a talented studio, they were feeling kind of stifled by the music scene in Finland at that time. Finland was a little bit in a very nationalistic period, art-wise. Which favored big, romantic operas by Finnish composers writing in a sort of post-Sibelius, nationalistic-ish style. They felt like they weren't hearing new styles of music that they weren't being exposed to the type of music that was being made outside of Finland. We really shared the same interest, and uh, 
We felt that not enough things were happening in Finland, but our teacher was very, very open, and he was pushing us to to analyze and um, and reach for all kinds of musics. There was a point at which there was no um, analysis of contemporary music course at the Sibelius Academy. That's Alex Freeman. I'm Alex Freeman, an American composer, composer who has lived and worked a lot in Finland. I thought you wanted me to say it in Finnish. <laughs> Can you say it in Finnish? <laughs> of course. On <laughs> Alex Freeman, on Saveldaya. So, so these composers sort of took it upon themselves to meet in each other's apartments or houses and analyze contemporary music. They called themselves the Ears, Ears Open, Open Society. Korvat Auki. So, Kaya, I have, the, I have this sort of romantic notion of you guys like sitting in some bar and talking about modernism. Was that like... Well, your romantic vision is exactly how it was. And uh, yes, it was endless meetings uh, in restaurants, and uh, it was great time. And their training was 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 fairly similar and fairly strict, I think. And it's and it's interesting. I think they all, you know, kicked that off as they left school, and they all went on in, in very different directions. And uh, and also, they couldn't have sustained this in the way that they did if it hadn't been a, a, a real earnest love of, of, of creating music and, and finding a path forward for Finnish music. So were you putting on concerts predominantly? Well, no. We went many, many different things. We, we organized concerts, but not only in concert halls, in prisons, in kindergartens. We made seminars. So you had uh, Magnus Lindberg doing a borderline doctoral dissertation to present to his fellow composers on uh, Stockhausen's contact. And that was very important. We felt that uh, we, in the Sibelius Academy at that time, there was not enough uh, seminars on important issues. So we organized it the weekends in, in our homes, and uh, that was really, really serious. You get a sense of, a, of, a, of an urgency and a seriousness about what they were trying to do. I mean, they, they took it upon themselves to, to become really uh, knowledgeable about what, what was going on in the rest of the world. Well, that time, you must remember that we are speaking about uh, time which is, uh, wait a minute, what? 35 years ago, <laughs> help. Uh, that time, it would have been composers like uh, Alman Berg. His music, his, uh, his life. Talois Zimmerman, who was not known in Finland at all. The second Viennese school, which was not very much known in Finland. In fact, that time there were many, many things that didn't come to Finland. So we wanted to bring them there. So Kaya and her colleagues are rabidly consuming music as fast as they can get their hands on it. And also slowly chiseling out their own styles. They're meeting in cafes in each other's apartments, putting on concerts of new music all over Finland, and writing as much as they can. And Kaya started getting kind of frustrated with something. She 
hated the acoustic of the concert hall at the Sibelius Academy where her pieces were being premiered. The hall was washy and imprecise. It made her music sound boring. Kaya started brainstorming. How could she fix this problem? As you've probably noticed in passing, the space in which you hear a sound drastically affects the way you perceive that sound. I'm pulling the curtain now. So this is a changing room. It's like, it's 10 feet high, and it's about five feet wide by like six feet long. So this place is like massive. It's like literally the, probably the height of a cathedral. Huge three-story staircases made out of marble. Alex, can you actually stand up in the ceiling? Is it like just over, it's like probably six and a half feet tall. So like this entire place, I would put like the length of it from where we are to the window to be about like, like 30 feet maybe, maybe less, like 24 feet, maybe less. Wait, hold on. I meant like three people, 18 feet. <laughs> now all of a sudden the ceilings are like, I don't know, 15 feet high or something. Everything sort of smells like guacamole. I'm not exactly sure why. Okay, so now I'm back in the Q2 Music Studio, and this place is maybe about eight feet by 10 feet, all carpeted, and the walls are this super thick plaster covered with tiles that are made of, I think, uh, fiberglass and fabric. You've probably noticed that my voice sounds kind of different in each one of these spaces. Vowel sounds that catch the room's resonance in one space die right after they're spoken in another. Consonants of long trails. They can be explosive or they can be subdued. Certain rooms favor certain tones of my voice. So imagine you're a composer. All of these factors totally affect the way a listener perceives your music. You can notate all you want, rehearse with an ensemble for weeks. But if they perform it in a concert hall or in a rock club or in a church, your piece is going to sound completely different. These acoustic variations, they really started bugging Kaya. She wanted audiences to hear the music the way she heard it in her head. And actually, there's a huge historical precedent for this. Glenn Gould got so fed up with the variables of live performance that he took to exclusively performing on recorded media. The same thing happened to the Beatles. But Kaya, she actually loved the intensity and, for that matter, the imperfection of live performers in a live space. She just didn't enjoy what a lot of physical spaces did to her music. I really love to be in concert and hear beautiful musicians. And as a composer, I didn't want to miss that link. So she decided to try to fix the problem. My interest was to control the sound. Because when we had our student concerts, they were in a very acoustically unpleasant place. And I was very frustrated. Once Kaya had started playing with this stuff, well, she realized she really had opened up her music to a massive set of new parameters. In the beginning, it was amplifying the sound, maybe adding some reverberation. Then little by little, I started manipulating the instrumental sound. Grabbing onto this bonus parameter, acoustics and electronic manipulation, Kaya opened a doorway to what would become a huge hallmark of her style. She needed to explore this further, and she knew that the only way to do that was to leave Finland. Kaya then embarked on a career-defining journey, discovering her voice and breaking new ground in composition. But we'll hear all about that after the break.
Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music, can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Tune in, won't you? Find us online at q2music.org. I'm Nadia Sirota, and you're listening to Meet the Composer, a deep dive into the musical mind. Today we're talking to composer Kaya Sariaho, and last we left her, Kaya was itching to leave Finland and explore what was happening musically in the rest of Europe. So it's the 1970s, and the place to be, at least for European composers with certain appetites, is Germany. Germany is the seat of European avant-gardism, which in those earlier days of globalization especially, really is quite different from American avant-gardism. And Kaya and her ears open colleagues go to study at the famous summer courses in Darmstadt. Darmstadt is a festival renowned for, among other things, extremely opinionated audiences with a sharp bent towards modernism. And by the way, that's still pretty much true. A friend of mine, who's a composer with post-minimal tendencies, had a string quartet of his booed there just a few summers ago. Darmstadt broke Kaya's musical world wide open. We learned to know about the music of uh, the Spectral School, Gerard Grisset, things that had not come to Finland yet. Spectralism is music that derives its harmonies from a strict mathematical analysis of acoustic sounds. So, for example, a spectral composer might figure out exactly which overtones make up the timbre of, say, a trombone sound. And then orchestrate those notes, complete with all their fancy harmonic series-y microtonalness, onto a whole ensemble. Kaya found this music incredibly inspirational. So Kaya, she takes this idea of spectral writing, which has a really strict formal component, and employs it loosely, intuitively, when it suits her musical purpose. She broke the rules. She took a very formal idea and kind of fudged it. Now, I'll unpack that in a little bit, but let me rewind for a minute. This idea, it's kind of how the whole history of Western music has worked. That's sort of the backbone of musical innovation. Like, take sonata form, for example. In a nutshell, sonata form was like the A-plus number one most dominant form for a first movement of a piece all throughout the classical era. And it went something like this. Section one has two contrasting ideas in it in two different keys. So let's say one idea is in C major. And the next idea is in G major or something. Section one gets played intact all over again. And that's called the exposition. Section two takes the section one ideas and goes apeshit with them. We call that the development section. Things will be played in a different key, they'll be cut up, put backwards, almost anything goes. Section three goes back to the material from section one, 
but instead of the second idea being played in a different key, it's played in the same key as the first section, so we all feel good and tonally grounded, and then there will be a big coda to show us the piece is over. Yay! Section three is called the recapitulation, by the way. So this form is all over the place. If you listen to Mozart, Haydn, Schubert, you name it, any of your brand name classical era bros used this thing. But every once in a while, we'll get these innovators. So let's talk about Beethoven. Beethoven owned sonata form. It was his thing. But then one day, he started getting kind of bored with it. And instead of just messing with his themes from the exposition in the development section, he thought, well, what if I want to introduce new material here? No one's stopping me, right? So he did, and it was awesome, and we think he's brilliant. Another example. So Arnold Schoenberg, around the turn of the last century in Vienna, thought music had gotten so chromatic, so harmonically adventurous, that the logical next step was to get rid of the idea of tonality, of key centers, altogether. So he created a new system of organizing music, just literally started from scratch. And in his system, all 12 notes in a scale were equally important, as opposed to one note being like home base. So we did this and made up a whole bunch of other rules, and he called this music 12-tone music. And it was great. And he had students, and they were crazy disciples of this technique. But one of his students had some funny, kind of slyly subversive ideas. Albin Berg. Berg learned all of Schoenberg's ideas and was super well-versed in them. But when it came to actually writing his music kind of cheated. He wanted to quote Bach in one of his pieces, so he kind of fudged the rules to make that happen. He wanted the open strings of the violin to really stand out in his violin concerto, so he kind of bent the rules to make that happen. P.S. These guys are all part of uh, the second Viennese school, one of the topics those ears open guys, including Kaya, were spending a lot of time with. So, the same way Beethoven fudged sonata form and Berg fudged 12-tone music, Kaya ends up doing this to spectralism. I asked cellists to play me certain sounds in certain manner. I analyzed the different places, and I, I saw what components had changed, and especially concerning pitch. And then from these results, I quite intuitively selected certain structures and then created the harmony like, like any harmony. So it was, it's more free and um, maybe more intuitive what I'm doing. But we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves. Back when Kaya was at Darmstadt, she met another female composer. Whose name was Pascal Criton, and she was another girl. And since there were not so many around, we became friends, and she was Parisian. So that was the reason I, I went to visit Paris, and then... I learned about these courses in IRCAM, so I wanted to apply, and I was accepted. It's 1982. The Commodore 64 has just been introduced, Atari has just released Ms. Pac-Man, and the movie of the summer is Walt Disney's Tron. The computer, an extension of the human intellect. Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho, 30 years old, has just moved from Germany to Paris to 
work on electroacoustic music deep under the Centre Pompidou at a place called the Institut de Recherche et Coordination Acoustique Musique. Earcam. Um, can you can you describe what it's like to walk into Earcam? Earcam was very mysterious. and a secret place. It was difficult to get in there. You go several floors down, there, there is this concert hall. And uh, it was like a mecca. It was really like a secret place with a lot of crazy scientists. I'm picturing like James Bond movies where you go into some mountain and it's, you know. It was like that a little bit, yes. Earcam was actually created by France's president, Georges Pompidou, in 1970 when he asked the composer Pierre Boulez to found an institute for research in music. So this is a scientific institution, but one that focuses exclusively on acoustics and on music. Remember, Kaya had already been playing around with electronics back in Finland when she used amplification and reverb to try to create more ideal acoustics for her compositions. But Earcam was a whole new ballgame. Well, Earcam particularly was designed with one major room enabled for the widest range of experimentation of musical work. That's Raj Patel. Raj Patel, and I am a principal at Arup, and I lead the acoustics, audiovisual, and theatre design team. Earcam is located deep underground, below the Centre Pompidou in Paris. But the main room has the ability for you to move the ceiling something like... 40 to 50 feet in the air. You can bring it right down to floor level. Also very James Bond. And you can raise it right up high. And on the perimeter of the room, there are a series of acoustical panels that are actually arranged as triangles. And each of the triangles has a different face on it. One face is sound reflecting, one face is sound absorbing, and one face is sound diffusing. And each of these panels is individually addressable by a computer. So the entire thing was linked to a computer. So you could change every single one of those panels individually if you chose to. But there were also presets that allowed them to be arranged in different capacities. Which is to say that Earcam was really fancy. This is back in 1982. Most concert halls don't even have that level of flexibility today. Processing power required to do that is immense in comparison to what was available for most musicians and most musical designers, even in high-end research institutions in 1982. So here's the thing. Electronic music had existed for decades by this time. Think electric guitars, synthesizers, the theremin. But all those things were using electric signals to kind of replicate acoustic instruments. What these guys in Paris were doing was using programming and electronics to process and manipulate sounds. They were exploring whole different planes of color and texture, pushing the boundaries of musical thought. The community was very passionate and uh, people were working night and day. 
And by the way, that's what you had to do because the computers were very, very slow at that time. And even if IRCAM had one of the biggest computers in Europe, it was still very slow. For example, if you wanted to create sounds on computer, um, it was not real time. It was you, you had to create very complicated calculation and then you start the calculation and then you went to have dinner and then you came back and then you could see if the calculation got broken or if it was still running. And then you could go to movies and then you would come back like two o'clock in the night to see if it was running or if it was uh, finished by any chance. Well, normally it was not finished. I went to sleep. You came back uh, next morning and if everything was well, the sound was ready and it was like plop. And, <laughs> and it had taken all this time. So it was very time consuming. This is an electronic piece Kaya wrote in 1984 called Jardin Sacré, Secret Garden. Imagine all of the hours spent realizing these sounds. I bet she saw a lot of movies. Working at Tirkam was very strange because it was a very different place than it's today. There, of course, again, I was the only woman. And um, the people needed to have very develop programming skills at that time when you worked with computers and that was not my case I I was eager to learn but um, I have never been really a machine freak you mm -hmm. know so the profile of the people the other people there was very different and I I had to prove that I was able to do something quite a lot on the other hand there was a very uh how to say, feverish feeling about creation and uh, close collaboration with uh, psychoacousticians and acousticians and programmers. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be literally the only woman at a scientific research facility with limited programming skills who was still aggressively searching for her compositional voice. Kaya somehow managed to navigate all of these circumstances, not just with grace, but triumphantly. The music she had started to write, it was smart, it was tightly constructed, and it was beautiful. Once she found her voice, she began to find inspiration all over the place. The sounds we could produce on computer were very boring. And I, I felt that they are dead. And then I started analyzing living sounds. And uh, I realized that living sound produced by musician is always interesting, or at least always more interesting than those dead sounds, was that it's changing all the time. Even if the musician would like to have a very stable vibrato or something like that, there are so many natural parameters which are all the time changing, and that's why every millisecond the sound is different. And that influenced a lot my work with electronics. Creating sounds with uh, computers, I started 
using ideas that these sounds have a lot of micro-variation all the time. Employing these ideas, Kaya's electronic music got way more complex and toothsome. But Kaya missed live performers. I really love to be in concert and hear beautiful musicians. And as a composer, I didn't want to miss that link. And really, right after Jardin Sacré, she started writing music which fused live performance and electronic sounds. If you Google Kaya's catalog, she actually doesn't list any of her music prior to this time. So this is, in her eyes anyway, the moment her style really began to emerge, that she was really finding her music. A quirky mix of electronically manipulated sound and a kind of fudged spectralism. There's also one more pretty big component to Kaya's music. She's very inspired by nature, but maybe not exactly in the way you'd think. The symmetry... Mm-hmm. How it is uh, realized by nature. Like fractals? Not even. Just like uh, uh, you think about any flower. They they have very strict rules. How rose, how many petals it has and in which order. And yet it's every time different. So that, uh, that interests me, that there is this very strict uh, formal basis for object, but then there would be this constant variation. And then if we speak about my string quartet Nymphea, I took as a metaphor for this piece the idea that there would be this flower water lily, which is very symmetric. But then this symmetry is all the time changed by the waves on which the leaf is uh, lying or by the wind, which is shaping the flower. So, you know, this kind of metaphors just inspire me to vary the material. But in fact, um, it's in very early stage of, of the composition, because then after that it becomes music and notes, and uh, sometimes this kind of idea gives a push to the imagination. I'm so obsessed with this idea that Kaya has all of these really strict pre-compositional processes whose importance ebbs the further she gets into a piece. gorgeous piece. I love this piece. But here's the thing. Yes, Kaya is inspired by large natural structures, but also very literally. She's influenced by the sounds of nature itself. Sounds she hears outside. Sounds she's loved basically forever. I like the sound of wind or wave 
or any kind of this kind of noisy sound, but yet yet in nature is very living sound. It's it's never similar. And then um, if we speak about uh, instruments, I could speak about flute. I like when the flutist is whispering into the instrument. And so there is a correlation between these two sounds. This brings up another sort of Kaya hallmark. She quite often has performers breathing or sometimes literally speaking through their instruments. Text has always pulled Kaya. Her very first compositions, actually, were mostly art songs. She's sort of scrubbed them out of her catalog. They weren't written in her mature compositional style. But I think it's interesting to note that words have always held a particular fascination for her. Texts just... uh stay in me. I think that human voice is um, spoken or or whispered or even breathing. It's uh, it's something so different than any other musical instrument. Maybe it evokes always some kind of intimacy and then um, texts bring completely another layer, this semantic layer to the music, which otherwise is maybe very abstract. Sometimes I don't even ask the flutist to recite it to the audience. I don't expect them to, to understand it, but I feel that the flutist, um, instead of whispering some... Uh, some abstract phonemes when whispering a text it makes more sense for them and then their whispering becomes more intense While it might seem kind of obvious for Kaya to write operas, given her predilection for text, she had always been kind of wary of large-scale theater work. In 1992, though, she had a kind of revelation after seeing Peter Sellers' staging of Messiaen's St. Francis of Assisi. The work is a sort of cross between an opera and an oratorio, with a heavily poetic text borrowing from a lot of medieval imagery. Kaya thought, well, if that's an opera, I can write an opera. And she did. Stay tuned. We need your help to provide the best in 24-7 new music radio. Take our three-minute listener survey today and help Q2 Music better serve you. Be heard at q2music.org survey. 
and thanks. This is Meet the Composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. And today, we're mining the brain of Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho. What you're hearing right now is a performance of a song written back in the 1100s in France by a prince and troubadour called Geoffrey Rudel. Troubadour is the high Middle Ages word for singer-songwriter. Only four of his songs survived, along with a handful of his poetry. And they're beautiful, But the real reason we remember him is because of this funny, sort of half-true, half-fictionalized biography of him, which was written about 100 years after his death. Kaya Sariaho became really taken with this text, La Vida Breve, and it inspired her in the early 1990s to set a poem of his. Actually, the text for the song we're listening to right now, When the Days Are Long in May, for soprano and electronics. It's a beautiful work called Long. All of these components made up the kind of inspirational soup from which Kaya pulled her first opera, La Mort de Loin. But before she could write it, Kaya really had to struggle with the question, what makes for a good night at the opera? I asked myself what are the most important subject matters in my life, and they are love and death. And I realized that the most important musical and psychological experiences I had in performances of operas where there was a libretto with a story. I started to tell myself, if I write an opera, it needs to be something different than the concert works. And then it's, of course, very funny when if I say that I wanted to write opera about love and death, because most operas (laughs) are about love and death anyway. So the story of L'Amour de Loin, which means love from afar, goes something like this. Our protagonist is the troubadour we were just talking about, Geoffrey Rudel. And at the start of the opera, he's beginning to get bored of his devil-may-care troubadour's lifestyle and dreams of a different type of love, a far-off woman who, he admits, probably doesn't exist. But then this pilgrim shows up who spent a bunch of time abroad, and he tells Geoffrey that not only does this woman exist, he's met her. So Geoffrey becomes totally obsessed and spends all of his time thinking about her. Then the pilgrim returns to the land from which he hails, which, as it turns out, is Tripoli, and tells the aforementioned woman, whose name is Clémence, that there's a French prince slash troubadour who's super into her, 
and calls her his love from afar. She's kind of put off by this at first, but eventually falls in love with the whole idea and starts wondering if she's worthy of that type of love. The pilgrim then sort of keeps going back and forth, relaying messages between the two of them, eventually telling Joffre that Clemence is flattered but would rather not spend her life waiting, that sort of thing. Finally, on an impulse, Joffre sets off to Tripoli himself, only to get super sick on the way over. He makes it just long enough to land in Tripoli and die in Clemence's arms. She's then super sad and joins a convent. For this opera, for the very first time, Kaya set out to work with a librettist. I'm in Malouf, mm-hmm. and uh, when we started working for L'Amour de Luan, we didn't know each other at all. We were introduced, and um, I was quite scared because I had not used uh, texts which I had not chosen. So I, I felt it's really, really risky situation. But um, he, he really wanted to learn to know my music. He read all I had used, all the texts, and uh, so it became a nice collaboration. Kaya said about the piece, In the midst of composing it, I understood that it was also my story. I was at once the troubadour and the lady, these two parts of me that I try to reconcile in my life. To write music, concentration is necessary, and interior hearing. To be a woman, to be a mother, one needs to be always available and busy. It's difficult to have, at the same time, your feet on the ground and your head in the sky. She's incredibly sensitive, and she's incredibly empathic, and she's just an incredibly caring and and thoughtful human being, a friend. That's violinist Jennifer Coe. I think she understands the complexity of of who we are as human beings, and it's all there in her music. She's played a ton of Kaya's music. It's not about seeing the world that there's right and wrong, and there's just white and black in the world, um, and that people fit into very particular categories. I think we see this in her operas. The perspective she gives through her music um, is very unique. It's almost a gift. It's a gift of, of looking into the internal life of somebody that's totally different from who you are. first thing that struck me was the intensity. It's very much about drawing you into this kind of uh, incredibly intense world. And it's not necessarily loud music, so it's not going at you. It's not necessarily at times extroverted in that way, but there's a kind of intensity in that internal life. I think that's what 
immediately intrigued me, I think. It's kind of like going into like something like this room that we're speaking in, like a soundproof thing. It's like suddenly all of the outside world just shuts down and goes... And you're just drawn into her music in a weird way. Since La Mort de Loire, Kaya has written three more operas, and each one of them features a strong female protagonist. When I was reading about Kaya, I found a recent speech she made at McGill University where she said, Today, 30 years after my own battles, young women still have to experience much the same everyday discrimination I went through. What I find disappointing is that um, I think we are going again backwards. I think there was a moment after my studies where I felt that the equality was really very, very actively in discussions and, and people really may paid attention to it. And then I feel that now we are going backwards, and that, that is what really worries me. Look at all the commercial world. Look all the publicity. Look the pressure to which young girls are put today concerning their appearance. Look at the horrible growth of anorexia among young people. Look at the violence still concerning women. I think we are still not equal uh, what comes to salaries and fees. And this, even in Finland, which was supposed to... It was one of the first countries where women started to vote. Uh, I think it's in all domains of life. And uh, I think we just should speak about it because we women, we raise up the men. So... uh, I think we are also doing something wrong. The Western world had a kind of radical period and now we are, we are going back to very much more conventional thinking in, in many ways. One of the things I love about Kaya, she's extremely open about her use of art to explore herself and her interior life. It's intimate. And I think one of the best examples of this shows up in a piece she wrote shortly after her daughter was born, Chateau de Lame. Chateau de Lame is, um, is a song cycle for soprano, eight voices, female voices, and um, an orchestra. And um, it's a song cycle about love, different loves. I, I, I had a feeling that I had to make some kind of update about all the loves I knew until then. <laughs> I, um, it's about passionate love. It's about the love that human can feel to earth. And it's about... Uh, parental love and motherly love. Because I, um, 
I learned to know motherly love only uh, when I was 36 for the first time. Uh, it was even then maybe much more important. Until, until that time I had been living so much in my music that uh, it was like miracle. I wanted to write it also for Don Upshaw and uh, for my daughter Alisa, who was baby when I composed it. have any words of advice for young composers? Well, my words of advice for young composers would be that uh, just try to find music from yourself. And uh, this music needs to relate to your person and for the things you believe in. And... um, that way you are able to create something personal. Because that's the only thing that counts. Often young people come to ask me, but what, what should I do to be a successful composer? And uh, what kind of music should I write? This, of course, I cannot answer to them. And I, I think the only answer is that to find music from themselves and because they themselves are different from anybody else so if they find a way then the music will be also original
Um, where do you feel like your music is going now? Hmm. I don't ask. I don't ask, and, uh, and I don't know. Meet the Composer is a production of Q2 Music, part of New York's Classical 105.9 FM WQXR. Enjoy new music 24-7 and discover the best by today's composers by listening to our stream at q2music.org. Thanks to Liam Byrne for playing 12th century French music on his viola de gamba. A very special thanks to the Anna Maria and Stephen Kellen Foundation, this episode's patron producer. Hi, baby. <laughs> this is Lee Moore Tomer coming to you from the Upper East Side of Manhattan, New York's newest hotbeds for new music. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington. Additional production support was provided by Caroline Chung, Hannes Brown, and Noah Kim. Our executive producer and my personal spirit animal is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our expert guests, Jennifer Coe, Alex Freeman, Luca Vaghetti, and Raj Patel, and to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 2 Kickstarter donors, including Melissa and David Smay, Giti Razaz, Susan Ambrose, Joe Holt, Andrew Buziak, Carl Schuster, and yours truly. 